hello and welcome to Please Don't Kick Me Out, a podcast about imposter syndrome. My name is Bianca Woolwick and I'm the host. I interview my friends and people that inspire me to figure out if they have the key to life and they feel successful or feel like they don't fit in like I do. Anyway, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey listeners, just wanted to give a big thank you and an update that I am slowing down on incoming interviews to focus on my backlog. I've really appreciated all of the interest in the podcast and all of the interviews, but with my husband deploying, I just really needed to take some time for my mental health and um, reprioritize. I'm starting to do a lot of volunteer opportunities for military and I just needed some time to kind of shift my focus. So um, for now, I'm not doing any incoming interviews. That'll probably change closer to the end of the year. But I do have episodes all the way into 2021 at this point. So I just wanted to say thank you again for everyone's support. I really appreciate it. And I hope everyone has a great week and enjoys the episode. My guest this week is David Melky. It's a really great interview and something that I hold very near and dear to my heart, which deals with a lot of LGBTQ rights. So I'm very excited to share it. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. How's it going for you, Bianca? Uh, It's another beautiful day uh, in sunny San Diego. Um, How's the weather where you are? Uh, well, I'm near Seattle on Vashon Island, about a 20-minute ferry ride from Seattle, and it's actually quite cloudy and um, feels like fallish today, actually. Interesting. Um, people told me when I moved here I would miss seasons, but I definitely do not. Okay, so for my <laughs> listeners, this is Please Don't Kick Me Out, a podcast about imposter syndrome, and the lovely voice coming from you near Seattle is David Melke. David, did, would you like to give your elevator pitch, who you are, what you do, etc.? Sure, I'd love to. I am a gay married yurt dweller who identifies as a bridger. And by that, I mean a person who uses stumbling blocks to build bridges to where I'd like to go, usually more loving, joyful, and growthful type places. Mm -hmm. I create and perform autobiographical stage shows. And I've been producing a language arts series for 20 years now that's ongoing, streaming now. And since the COVID lockdown, I've been making videos of Broadway show tunes with a twist. All right. So I'm already in love with you. So there's (laughs) that. Um, I have to, you have to send me all of this afterwards because I'm excited. Uh, I'm very, very humbled that you took the time out of your schedule and your gorgeous yurt to talk to me today. Um, But you and I use this this platform called matchmaker.fm, which I've told my listeners is not a dating website. I am happily married, as is David. Um, (laughs) But... Uh, it is a way to connect podcasts to podcasters, um, and I've been using it for about a month now, and I've met some amazing people, such as David, so it's exciting to share their stories. Um, so matchmaker.fm if you are looking to be a podcast guest or a podcaster. Yeah, highly recommend it. Yeah. So let's just kind of address the elephant in the room, um, which is, of course, imposter syndrome. And Mm -hmm. uh, I always ask this question and resoundingly, it seems to have the same answer. But I always say I'd be wary if the answer was to the contrary. So (laughs) do you feel like you have it all figured out? Oh, my God. No, no. I maybe would have said I thought I had it sort of figured out when I was in my 
teen, late teens, early 20s. But the older I get and the more life experiences I have, I feel like the less I know. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you say that because I remember feeling in my 20s, like, I got it. Like, I, I know everything. And I look back and I'm like, oh, girl, you were dumb. Like you didn't know what was coming, but I, yeah, yeah, I remember this sense of like, after um, finishing college and getting into my first job, I had this real steep depression hit me where I was like, wow, this is all there is that I do this until I retire. Uh, and it was, it was very sobering to be like, okay, so this is like what I went to school for. This is everything I did. And, and I realized then and there that that is not a, a means to have it figured out because suddenly your goalpost is moving. So now the things I wanted were different. So it's just kind of interesting how uh, resoundingly my guests seem to answer it with this answer <laughs> because I think if you do have it all figured out, then you're rather complacent. That's quite boring. Well, and even maybe if you do for a certain time and place, but then life is always changing and circumstances are changing. And if you're a conscious growing person and checking in with yourself mm-hmm. regularly, it just everything changes all the time so you have to keep reevaluating and you know when people talk about the concept of reincarnation i always think well we'll find out if it if there is any such thing when we die i guess but but right here in this life we reincarnate many times over as far as you know being a child and then sort of dying as a child and being a teen and then dying as a teen and becoming an adult and uh, the different ways we're shaped by what happens to us in life and it, it feels, as the older I get, to feel like I, I feel like I've lived many different sort of incarnations right in this life. And each one has required another evaluation of, of circumstances. Yeah, that is really beautiful. You know, I've never actually thought of it in that way, kind of how we have these growth periods that essentially are like birth and death. I mean, I've never really kind of, but, you know, birth and rebirth, essentially not death, but rebirth. (laughs) Um, I never (laughs) thought about that that way, but that's actually really interesting. um, And I actually really like that. I'm going to add that to my Rolodex. (laughs) It's a helpful way to go through life. I mean, I'm, I'm 57 now, so I feel like I've been through a few incarnations and there's something comforting in that because then you get used to that idea and it doesn't feel when a big change like a major death in your life of somebody or a major job loss or a health crisis or any of those big life-changing events don't seem as scary because after a while it just feels like they're part of the kind of norm and that's partly why we like living in this yurt in the Mm -hmm. woods because we have 13 acres of of woods around us and it's the being that close to the cycles of nature and and here in the pacific northwest we have more of those cycles apparent than you do down in san diego Mm -hmm. um i lived in los angeles for many years so i i know kind of what it's like there too and you have to seek out kind of the like maple trees or something that show you what season you're in um but there's just something comforting about being in sync with the fact that life means constant change and and then having to kind of rebuild yourself again from the lost. Yeah, that is really, really beautiful because, um, you know, I think a lot of, like what I, I'm actually, I was born in Minnesota. I moved to Colorado when I was 10 for my dad's job. And then I went to college in Colorado, moved to Denver after college, 
really Denver is my city. I have like a giant tattoo of the skyline on my bicep. Like it's, <laughs> it's very much, I bleed orange and blue for the Broncos. I don't understand football, but I love them. Um, <laughs> but basically I just, I very self-identified with Colorado, but one thing that many Coloradans take for granted is that the mountains are in their backyard. Uh And so I never really got into hiking. I never really got into going into the mountains. I never really got into skiing or snowboarding or any of that. And Uh so it kind of took me moving here. Of course, I'm married to someone that's in the service. I'm married to a Lieutenant in the Navy. So Uh we moved here, we bought a house out here and it's the first time I've ever really felt connected to a community um, where I'd lived in Denver for nine years and I didn't feel that. And it's interesting because Los Angeles and San Diego couldn't be more um, geographically different because (laughs) um, San Diego's got, you know, mountains and mountains and desert and, and ocean and, and pretty much we're always pretty calm 75 degrees. Uh Um, And people told me, of course, you'll miss seasons. And I said, I said, I've earned the fact to not because I'm almost, I was almost 30 when I moved here and I'm 31. Uh And I, you know, the only thing that feels weird for me is like in the winter time, it just feels a little bit bizarre that like you maybe need a light sweater outside at Christmas. Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) and the first Christmas without snow was kind of like, huh? Yeah. You know, I guess, I guess this is how other states do this. I didn't know that that was a thing, but overall, (laughs) um, yeah, it's really enjoyable, but I live, um, I've lived in East County. Uh, uh-huh. so I'm super close to like nature, mountains, hiking trails and all of that. It's funny because out here I've gotten into hiking and biking and going to the beach and grounding and all of those things. And I was never into them when I was in Colorado, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And don't, don't you find, do you feel just better in general when you're doing those things? Oh yeah, you, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think, um, sometimes you stay in a place for too long and then you outgrow it. And for me, that was Colorado. Um, I just, you know, I didn't choose to move there. And I, I was actually, before I met my husband at a point where I wanted to move to another city and San Diego was on that list. And then it just so happened. I met um, my husband who was like, well, I just got here to the studio station. So can you wait a year or two before you make that move? Um, but he just happened to be my soulmate. So it worked out. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. And that was on your, that was one of your cities on your list. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. I had come here for a beer festival in 2013. I was working for a contract for a snack food company. Uh I had just gotten out of this really rough breakup. I was maybe 23 or 24. Gosh, I don't remember anymore. It's a long time ago. For me, it feels Uh like so long ago. It was just my like my early 20s, and had no business traveling the country for work. Had no business handling a brand, but. I was contract. And so I I did a beer festival with my boss and we went to Pacific beach and then we went to the beer festival, which was in gas lamp. And I was like, Oh, everyone's really nice here. Like everyone was so nice and kind. Uh And, and I was like, Oh, I like San Diego. So I always had really positive thoughts about San Diego, but I never came back. Um, Uh And so moving here after only visiting one time was kind of intense, but uh, I really hit the ground running. Um, I, my best advice for my listeners are if you move to a new city, the best place to work and the best people to know are within real estate because you'll learn the area a lot better. So it just so happened that I was in marketing. So it, I was able to work for a real estate sector doing marketing. Uh, ah, well, that's a good tip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely um, miss it and don't at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it's interesting. That's it's so interesting how we're called to certain places. And, mm-hmm. and it's always important to try to, I, I think it's important to try to, you know, as connected to that imposter syndrome, part of not feeling that imposter syndrome, I think, is listening to those authentic little gut inklings of, uh, that just tell you, ooh, I'm sort of drawn to this place or a book that jumps out on the bookshelf or, mm-hmm. you know, just those subtle little things that if we pay attention to them, they'll lead us to something. Yeah, absolutely. And that segues perfectly into the next question, which is about imposter syndrome. And I'll just touch on that point real quick that you shared, where if you just lean into that gut feeling or you lean into who you are or those kinds of things. Um, I've always considered myself a snap judgment person, not in a bad way, but like I, the first car I test drove, I was like, this is the car I'm going to buy, um, this make and model. The first uh-huh. house that we put an offer in on, we bought, you know, and, uh-huh. and, and I, I knew that my husband was my soulmate the second I met him pretty much. Uh-huh. I just knew. And I've, and I've always taken things and given it my a hundred percent. And the only thing that's never really matched up is, is my, is my career because I'm, I've realized that, um, I can stay small and market for others, or I can use my voice for change. So I'm right now I'm fully leaned into who I am as a person using my podcast as a platform for change, uh-huh. changing, you know, using my voice to amplify others. And I've found that I don't feel imposter syndrome anymore because I'm not playing a role. I'm myself. Uh, exactly. Yeah. That's a big, big part of it. I think. Yeah. Yeah, the more the more areas of your life that feel completely authentic and in mm-hmm. sync with what you what really lights you up, what makes you feel fulfilled and excited to get up in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, I'll just ask the question verbatim, which is, do you feel like you fit in or suffer from imposter syndrome? In what ways? And what does imposter syndrome mean to you? Well, to me, it means imposter syndrome. To me, means just not feeling. Uh, at heart, comfortable in your own skin, and having to exert a lot of energy to to maintain the facade of what you think you need to be to be uh, seen and loved and and validated externally by other people. To put it in a nutshell, I guess. Um, but I but I've also experienced it. I think it's something that can well it's well up stick its little head up in in unexpected times too. I don't think it's something that you just kind of get over and then don't have it anymore. I feel like I've had it in different ways. Like being a gay kid, mm-hmm. I felt I had it because everyone around me was acting like I wasn't um, a, a proper boy somehow because I was perceived as being too sensitive or or creative, which were considered to be girl qualities in the time and place where I grew up back in the 60s. Um, and so I, I felt like I was always being an imposter boy when I would try to figure out, well, what am I supposed to be to not invite this kind of negative attention? And then as a teenager, when I realized, oh, I, I am this horrible thing that people called me and told me I was before I even knew what it was, but mm-hmm. they had taught me that it was a very bad thing for a boy to be a gay person. Um, that that internalized self-hatred for being that thing had already been planted in me. So I was terrified to have anybody recognize that or, or mm-hmm. see that. So through my teens, I tried desperately to um, be what I thought a, you know, a, a good straight guy was supposed to be in the worst 
kind of ways because there was no good role modeling of anything other than a kind of, um, well, like training to be misogynistic almost mm -hmm. in that where I grew up in this sort of resource town. And, the, and it, you know, and it reflected the, it was illegal. It was a criminal offense to be a homosexual in Canada where I grew up until 1969. Wow. And it was a mental illness, according to mm -hmm. the health world, until 1973. So I was six before it was even decriminalized. And it still had a huge stigma on it all through the 70s in Canada. You could certainly not come out in high school um, in the 70s without, you know, just being run out of town, pretty much. And, um, and so what happened to me was I felt like such an imposter because I started cutting out everything out of my life that felt like somebody might think I, I wasn't a, a macho guy. So if I loved theater and acting and singing and all these things, I just systematically cut all of those out. I tried to play hockey and play sports, which I hated and was no good at. Um, the TV shows that I really liked had to all be just seen in, you know, secret kind of, mm -hmm. I couldn't, share my enthusiasm for what I really loved. And if you let your guard down for a second, it felt like you would get caught. So for mm -hmm. example, one time I, I remember going to a PE class and they had a sign on the door that said, don't bother to change into your gym strip today because we're going to be doing square dancing. And I was so excited when I saw that, that I just sort of let out this, um, spontaneous like oh oh boy we get to dance today and then i turned around and realized a bunch of the you know bullies were standing behind me and they had witnessed my my true enthusiasm for something and they were like oh look at femboy there is excited about dancing and it felt like all my work i'd done to try to butch it up just flew right out the window and and um and I felt like, you know, that remember that thing that kids do with a flower or what people do when you love somebody and you pluck the petals, she mm -hmm. loves me, she loves me not. It, it felt like that, like, except I was like the flower of myself, the petals of my own individuality and uniqueness. It's like, if I pluck this one out, will you love me? If I pluck this one out, will you love me? You know, or if I don't pluck this one out, will you love me? Till you end up just being a stem of yourself and all of yeah. your unique blossoms and blooms are are gone and and i was so depressed that i felt suicidal at 15 and and realized that life wasn't worth living if you have to be an imposter to that extent and and i ended up running away and living for two years on my own and became emancipated legally by my parents and um and and realized i was kind of on my own in life and eventually, after two years, decided to go back to my little town and drop back into school, partly because you don't get far with a grade nine education, and partly because I had this gut feeling that if I didn't go back and face what I'd sort of run away from, that I'd spend my whole life being somebody who runs away from things that are difficult. I just, it was the yeah. beginning of, of really listening to that, those inklings inside that will guide you if you carve out enough quiet time to hear them and, and, and aren't, you know, when I stopped anesthetizing myself with drugs and alcohol and just mm -hmm. any distraction I could get, that was the kind of thought that would bubble up. And I started journaling and developing a kind of a relationship with this part of myself that felt safe to express itself through, through a journal. 
knowing that no one else would ever see it. Um, and then also the kindness of attracting people into my life that like I, I had a probation officer when I got in a lot of trouble as a runaway um, doing things that were illegal. And this probation officer was the first person that ever sat down and really asked me kindly and I could feel his kindness. Well, what do you really want to do? What are you interested in in life? And I had the inkling that it was safe to tell him that I was interested in acting. And so he arranged for all my community service hours to be paid in a professional um, theater company in Vancouver, Canada. Wow! Yeah. And so I was suddenly in this atmosphere uh, yeah, of, uh, it was just like heaven to me to suddenly be surrounded by all these theater artists who were were celebrated for being creative and playful and imaginative. And it was like, oh my God, like this is, this is real. This, you can live like this and there's a place where you don't get beat up for being this way. And so that, that's what had helped me too, to, to realize a lot of them had said, you know, you have to finish your education in case you want to get a degree in theater arts or something. You, you know, you, you need to do that. And I just thought that mixed with um, wanting to face what I had run away from. And so I went back and was determined that I was going to be do drama. I was going to do singing. I was going to learn how to play the piano. I was going to do, I was going to do well in school because even being perceived as caring about school for boys where I grew up was, mm-hmm. you know, they'd grab your report card and see, oh, look, Femboy got some A's on here, you know, and then you'd get beat up for that. And so um, I also had a teacher when I dropped back into school who I had known in elementary school and she'd been my very favorite teacher. And, um, she had moved up to the high school level by then and was doing drama productions as it turned out. And she just um, sort of took me under her wing and she, she just became my, my mentor and uh, my best friend eventually after I graduated from school and her husband had died and her, she had no children and we just, we became friends in later life. And when I eventually went to Hollywood, she would come and spend her summer holidays with me. And um, anyway, she was an instrumental part of, of, of helping to, to call out what was the authentic parts of me mm-hmm. and seeing them, loving them, celebrating them and accepting them and not being too judgmental on the, the parts of me that were angry and um, damaged from, from my childhood experiences. And, and that was a very key thing to have that one person who you feel like really sees you and accepts you as you are sort of warts and all and loves you anyway. And, yeah. Um, yeah. That is profound. Um, I wish I could give you a hug <laughs> just because um, that story right there is why I am an ally. And that is why I fight for equality. Um, Thank you. You know, if trans lives don't matter, then neither can all. And if homosexual lives don't matter, then neither can all. And um, you you mentioned the sense of belonging and feeling like you found your family and your calling in the theater. And, um, you know, I had a, I had a, I don't really talk about my family much, but I had a, a well-to-do childhood, didn't want for anything, but I'm, my parents didn't love me in the way that I 
I needed. So uh-huh. I fit in better with people who were gay, uh-huh. even though I myself was not. Uh-huh. Um, I realized that for me, my family is my chosen family and my family is my husband and our puppy Bourdain and, and my, you know, my friends Ehab and Trey and Sean and Jason and all of this giant rainbow family that has accepted me for who (laughs) I am and has always championed me. Um, Mm -hmm. And it influences the board of directors I sit on, which is for homeless LGBTQ youth. It helps support them. It influences every thread of my being. Um, So I just want to thank you. And I'm sorry that that was the time. And I, we will continue this fight. Um, just because I, I hear that and I hear it being illegal and I hear all those things and it just breaks my heart that that was ever a group think mentality because I, you know, I've met some (laughs) of the kindest lesbians and gay men and trans and all of that. And if they could just see what I see, and take away those rose-colored glasses, they would realize that if we're shaming people into not being who they are because of a fear of not being themselves and not fitting in, and we and we make them hide in clubs like Stonewall where they can feel mm-hmm. accepted, mm-hmm. then that's not a society we should be living in. Everyone should be allowed to be free in who they are. Yeah, and if there's something in the, in a person that, I mean, why should somebody care how other people express themselves if they're not hurting anybody? So you have to really question why someone even goes out of their way to want to express in a negative way towards anybody who's, who's different from them. And, mm-hmm. But I, I wouldn't change any of, you know, from where I'm sitting now, of course I would have changed it for anything when I was young, but now it just, it, it, I learned so many things about questioning at a young age. Like, you know, if, if, if you are in a situation where the status quo that you're being taught this, that, that that's the way things are, and you know, in your gut, it's not that way for you. It makes you start to question authority and question what other people might just go along with. Um, so at a young age, you start to think for yourself and you also learn to be compassionate and empathic because mm-hmm. you you know what it feels like to feel less than to feel not wanted to feel attacked for something that's not in your control so you're more sensitive to all the isms mm-hmm. to, to the race racism and sexisms and and also realizing you know at a young age that um a lot of that anger that was directed at gay men, there seemed to be a little bit more tolerance for gay women as far as their level of violence and that was being done towards gay men. And it, I realized at a young age that a lot of it had to do with genderism and, and the fact of, it was actually like this kind of patriarchal um, thing against mm-hmm. women in general, that a, that a man who made himself like a woman in a kind of sexual way at its low you know sort of most physical level mm-hmm. was lowering his status kind of in in a you know after hundreds of years of this patriarchal um uh, subjugation of women and and female energy and and all of the qualities of associated with that of sensitivity and creativity and intuition and caregiving and nurturing and all those beautiful qualities that men have inherently in them too but were systematically not allowed to express. And I realized a lot of 
that was all connected to these mm-hmm. other bigger issues, systemic problems mm-hmm. at a young age. Um, the only, you know, the, the challenging thing was that I felt when I moved to Los Angeles and was working in Hollywood, I felt much better about myself because there were a lot of other gay people there mm-hmm. too until the AIDS crisis hit yeah. in the eighties. And then suddenly all those poisonous seeds had, that had been planted and I thought had been weeded out just were able, it was like pouring supercharged fertilizer on the negative seeds and they just grew because that internalized shame took what suddenly was happening, all this death and horror and, and, uh, and discrimination um, and felt like, yeah, I guess it's true. I guess what everyone said is true. I must be really a bad person at heart and this is my punishment. This is what we deserve. Like horrible thoughts like that. Mm-hmm. It was like setting, being set back and having to, again, work really hard to decide, okay, am I going to just succumb to this and be defeated by it? Or am I going to really dig deeper and say, well, wait a minute, am I a bad person? Like, am I really hurting anybody and really have to work through that and realize, well, no, I'm not. So that's not true what they're yeah. trying to label us with in that one. Yeah. Uh, and the strength that comes from that. Absolutely. And then in terms of imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, being in, in Los Angeles, I mean, I've got, I've got family in Los Angeles. I've got friends in Los Angeles. I know how Los Angeles makes me feel uh-huh. yes. <laughs> where I'm like comparing myself to everyone's highlight reel and, uh, <laughs> yes. and uh, you know, it's all filters really. I, oh, yes. see, I need to see those bloopers, but see the real thing. In working in Hollywood, um, mm-hmm. did you feel imposter syndrome a lot as an actor? Oh, oh my God, yeah, all the time. Well, for the reasons you just said, partly on a superficial level, because there was so much pressure and emphasis on how you looked. Um, although I remember feeling a little bit alleviated in that the first day I worked on a, I worked on a soap opera, Days of Our Lives, and I oh, wow. had never, I had never, I'd never watched the show. I didn't know any of the characters or actors on it. And at the rehearsal and camera blocking in the morning, there were all these people, you know, that were holding their scripts and their coffee cups and were, and, but they all just, they all just looked like they'd rolled out of bed. And, and I, and I honestly thought to myself in my naiveness, I thought, Oh, I guess the real actors don't come in until, you know, later in the day or something. And these all must just be stand-ins. But then they called makeup and hair time and they all went off into hair and makeup. And when they came out, it was like, holy God, I can't believe the transformation, you know, with goobs and goobs of thick pancake makeup in those days when it was shot on videotape and just flooded with light so that everybody just looked flawless on camera, but ridiculous in person. And that, that helped a little bit as far as that part of it went to realize, oh, they do all kinds of stuff to make people look good. But it was more, for me, it, the imposter part of it was more starting to kind of project onto the camera and that giant sort of eyeball of the lens of the camera. This, the, it was the psychology of not really feeling safe to be seen. Mm-hmm. And realizing that a lot of actors, I think, suffer from this weird combination of going into acting on some level because they didn't feel seen as a kid and they want to be seen. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, they're afraid to really be seen. And so it creates a very um, mixed thing within the psyche. And um, 
it causes a lot of the negative behavior, I think, that you hear about with people that if they do manage to become successful, often it's for a character and it's not really for who they really are. They're still not really being seen because they've been trying to act what they think they're supposed to be. So they feel hugely like an imposter underneath all of that. And um, it just creates, you can feel the energy of the sadness of it. Mm -hmm. um, I had a real gift also when I was young. I, one of my sort of part-time jobs to survival jobs in Hollywood was working at NBC in Burbank um, in the mail room as a, what they called a permanent on-call temp kind of. So every mm -hmm. morning they would phone, they would phone me and let me know if I needed, if they needed a temp, if they needed me to come in that day or not. And I could say, no, I have an audition today or I'm working on something today. So I didn't have to go in, but the days when I, I did spend quite a few days there, and I would go up and watch the tapings of The Tonight Show. Every afternoon, they would tape it at 5.30 back in the Johnny Carson days, way back in, like, this was like 1984 yeah. or so that I started working there. And I got to, I would go up at two o'clock to watch the rehearsals of musical guests. And then I would go up right when I got off work at 5.30, I'd run up to the studio and run backstage and then watch the show backstage. And it taught me so much because I got to see these iconic performers that make it look so effortless and everybody loves them and you'd think they have the world by the tail mm -hmm. and I would see them backstage pacing behind the curtain and then I would watch on the monitor as they walked out through the curtain in this transformation when they would put on their performance face right they're they're mm -hmm. they would suddenly pull it all together and I realized they were really good at hiding how nervous they were and how how scary it was for them to go out there and face it even somebody like a Lucille Ball that you would think would be nothing for her to walk out there because she knows that they're going to adore her, mm -hmm. but yet she'd be pacing and, and seem nervous and chain smoking. And, or someone like Robin Williams sitting in the stairwell backstage, like clutch, pulling his knees up and rocking like a little kid, wow. you know, and realizing, my God, yeah, the pressure it must be to have to go out there and know that he's expected to be hilariously funny and spontaneous yeah. and, and things, you know, things like that. Um, it really made an impression on me that, um, that a lot of people suffered from this sense of not maybe feeling deserving of their success or that yeah. they were going to be found out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge Robin Williams fan. I was absolutely devastated um, oh. to see the facade come up and that, oh, wow, you know, this is a person that suffered, suffered deeply from mental health and stuff. Yeah. Um, Jeannie is my favorite uh, character in oh, Disney. Oh, God, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, God, I'm a huge Goofy and a huge uh, Jeannie fan. And, and when I read the backstory on really how like Aladdin is kind of like the pinnacle of like when Robin Williams really started feeling like he wasn't doing things that were authentic to him anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And suddenly he was put on this pedestal that he could just never obtain. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is really heartbreaking. Um, but also it's, it's nice to live in a day and age where now we're not as, well, we all have our phones and they're like microcomputers in our hands and we can see celebrities for who they are. Um, yes. But, you know, I always tell people it's better to be wise to the fact that what someone portrays is probably not really who they are. And you're right. It is kind of a, you're 
So Hollywood is interesting in the way that you'll try and try and try and try. You'll throw a bunch of things against a wall. And the one that sticks is never the one that you thought would stick. And suddenly <laughs> you're huge, you're famous, and you're on a roller coaster ride. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, you know, it's a lot. And I think that we're going to have a lot smarter of a youth because they're not going to look at these celebrities and put them on a pedestal and idolize them the way that they did when I, I was in my, you know, I was a kid, you know, uh -huh. it was boy bands like in sync. And of course I liked the gay one, Lance Bass and, um, <laughs> and in Backstreet Boys and it was larger than life and Spice Girls for me, this was my childhood. And, oh, yeah. and, and it felt like you could never get close to them. You could never be near them. And now through the little phone I have, I can see the <laughs> everything that they do all day, every day. Yeah. So I think that the facade is starting to begin to be lifted. And imposter syndrome is such a scary terminology. It's got, you know, the word imposter and the word syndrome, it makes some, it makes people feel like something's wrong with them. Yeah, so it's like it's a pathology yeah. or something. Right. So oftentimes I find that people are, um, if they tell me they don't feel it, they listen to one podcast episode and then they go, oh yeah, no, actually I do. Um, because <laughs> yeah. it, it sounds worse than it is. It sounds like Stockholm syndrome or something, you know, like, so, like just something like that's yeah. way worse. Um, <laughs> yeah, but does. really it's just feeling that this feeling of not fitting in, this feeling of not doing what drives your soul, this feeling of, of diminishing your accomplishments, this feeling of even when you get to where you want to be that you can't accept it. And that is, the hardest part about feeling this feeling is that, you know, if you earned it because you worked really hard for it, you truly do deserve it and earn and deserve. Those are two very big words. And for someone like myself who can't accept compliments and I'm trying, that was my, that was my new year's resolution. <laughs> oh, good. That's a good I, one. I have, you know, I find that imposter syndrome, you know, deeply is ingrained to success. So that segues into success and kind of a little bit on what you touched on. But um, success looks different to me than it will for you. Um, and everyone has a different uh, definition of what, what success looks like. And uh -huh. so what does success, excuse me, success look like to you? And do you feel successful? You know, it's, I can actually joyfully say that I do feel successful now. But my criteria for that is, is so different than it would have been when I was younger again. To me, it's just feeling at peace in my own skin, mm -hmm. in my own circumstances of my life with at peace with the choices that I've made. Um, even if even the ones that I maybe would have made differently if I'd known how things would play out. Um, and just making peace with, I think it, I've come to think that the slight feeling of imposterness is also just a part of the human condition in the sense that we are these physical, we're, we're in these physical bodies having a physical experience, but we have this other side to us that's mysterious that people call spirit or um, whatever it is that animates us, you know, whatever it is we are before we're born physically and whatever we are after we die, even if it's just kind of going back into some molecular form or, or, or just a pure energy or whatever it might be on a scientific level that's a mystery. Mm -hmm. And so in our human physical body experience, there's a piece of the puzzle that we don't have the answer to. And maybe just that in itself is enough on some level to have us all feel like something slightly missing, like we don't know fully who we are, uh, you know, these human beings that we are. Um, that there's something about the mystery of what 
why we're here, how did we come to be? Mm-hmm. And if it is all just nothing and we flukily through some weird biological reason manage to spark to life and then we die and then that's it and, and that, that's all that there ever will be for each of us, um, which again doesn't fit in with nature and that, that cyclical lesson that nature models all the time. Um, there's something about that I just feel at this age that's connected to that's helped to ease a lot of that, mm-hmm. you know, that there's just mysteries, there's things we don't know. And so I guess I would say that part of what I, why I feel successful now is that I can accept the sides like feeling at times, maybe still like an imposter if I have to perform. There's, all, there's often that moment waiting, you know, for the cue to go out where I think, Oh God, I'm not going to be able to do it this time. Or I'm, it's, they're going to boo me off the stage or um, they're not going to like anytime you create something and put it out there for judgment. I don't know (laughs) if anyone ever can fully, I think the best, at least that I can hope for is to feel fearful about putting it out there, Mm -hmm. but not let the fear stop me from putting it out there. Yeah, that is absolutely great advice because uh, uh, I have a podcast about imposter syndrome and I had imposter syndrome (laughs) before I released it. Um, and I was a radio DJ all through college. I am a strong communicator. I have no problem. Anything I audition for, I get, I am like, if I audition for something on reality TV, um, I have the kind of personality that they are always seeking. Um, Uh I've never taken any of the things I've been offered. Um, uh, one time I got cast onto Guy Fieri's big project, which is Guy Fieri. Oh yeah. Um, And I turned it down. Um, even though I'm obsessed with him, like, I just don't think I could look at the man without cracking up. Uh, and, and I, and I, my imposter syndrome crept in in that moment where I thought I'm too fat right now to be on a cooking show where I'm eating and Uh. I don't like myself enough right now to have to, to be relentlessly made fun of. And so I didn't allow Mm -hmm. myself in this podcast to do that because there's been so many projects I've tried to start and stop and all of that. And I've gotten in my own way. Uh And so this time around, I said, you know what? what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Someone gives me a one star review on Apple podcasts. All right, cool. Whatever. Like that's fine. Yeah. No one's come here, taken my microphone away and said, you need to shut the fuck up. (laughs) No one's, (laughs) no one's listened to my episodes and told me anything negative. So, and, and no one's, you know, cause I'm just telling people stories and I'm relating and we're having a conversation. So that feels successful for me because I always said, if my podcast just changes one life or makes one person feel accepted or heard or seen or whatever, then it's done its job. And it has done its job every single episode. Oh, wow. So yeah, I mean, I don't expect this is ever going to monetize or get crazy huge or whatever, but I wake up every day and I enjoy what I'm doing and I'm doing something for myself. And I like that. It's the best. I mean, and that's success to wake Mm -hmm. up in the morning and feel good about what you're contributing to the bigger collective of the world that's what it's all about. Um, yeah. You know, that's all, that's all we have any control over is what we put out there. We have no control over how it's received. Right. So. And that is something that you, that like you learn as you age, I think, because, yes. um, and also therapy. <laughs> I'm in therapy. Yes. Justina's great. Uh, I always shout out <laughs> her, my therapist, because I used to advocate for therapy and then um, I just never had a good connection with any therapists I've start and stopped a couple of times, but Uh basically, uh, for me, I've just realized that 
you know, as you age, you kind of get better at just kind of rolling with the punches and, yes. and, and, and you realize that you really, you're taught these things in high school and middle school and, and, and like elementary school that you have to fit in, you have to fit in, you have to fit in, you have to conform. And, yeah. and you learn after college or whatever your education might be or your real world experience that honestly, the second you start being yourself and you stop giving a shit, what anyone else thinks, uh -huh. you're, then, then your things start to click into place and you start to feel better. And, but no one tells you that because society <laughs> says you have to fit this box and check these marks. That's right. It takes a lot of courage to go against that, even though what you just said is true. And there's so many examples of people like someone like Oprah Winfrey says that all the time mm -hmm. that she, you know, she's always just spoken from her gut and been authentic to that and that she attributes all of her success to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Oprah so much. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> she's do too. just, I, I consider her like if I was ever religious and she's like, oh God, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. So like yeah. if I, instead of saying like, thank God or whatever, I usually say, thank Oprah. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, um, I loved, you know, I don't know if you even remember when her show first came on the air. Did you watch it that long ago? My mom would watch it. So I was born in 1989 and oh, I remember that my mom would watch. Um, yeah, I'm 31. <laughs> my mom would watch, <laughs> uh, she would watch Oprah pretty much every day. And then Rosie O'Donnell had a show. So yes. we'd watch that after because it would be like Oprah and then Rosie. And yeah. I remember I was watching the day that Tom Cruise came on and jumped on the couches. I oh, yeah. was watching, like, I remember in the 90s, she like stopped eating beef. Like that was a huge thing. And the beef yeah. people were mad. And I, I always loved her Oprah's favorite things days yes. um, because she would give away things. And I was like, man, that's my bucket list. Like, um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, she was just something else I'm entirely. And I don't think that anyone could ever, you know, you can't replace her. And I think a lot of talk show hosts try to be her. And similarly, a yeah. lot of talk show hosts tried to be Johnny Carson. That's right. And, and um, you know, there was that huge rat race between Letterman and Leno. That, yes. And then, and then the same thing happened with Conan. And it was just like, it, you know, it's, they're all trying to be something they're not. And that's kind of why I like Conan so much is he's unequivocally himself. And he's always been that way. Yes. And, and that's what makes him funny. That's, that's, that's really true. And, you know, and with, with Oprah, it was interesting, like remembering back to when she first started her sh national show. And at the beginning she was doing, they were doing the same kind of sensationalistic things that talk shows were doing at, at that time. They were designed to bring people on that would be sure to get into a terrible fight or, you know, they were, they mm -hmm. were just like tabloid TV, but Oprah started to rebel against that as soon as you know as soon as i guess she had enough power and and when she took over the ownership of that show she she went against what everyone else was doing and said no i don't want to i don't feel comfortable putting this crap out there i want to put things out there that make people think and feel and reveal truths that we hide and i mean she would have done a show on imposter syndrome back mm -hmm. for sure and and that's what i appreciated about it 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 was like she was consciously using her platform to grow and sharing her own growth as she went. And it was so mm -hmm. authentic, uh, including sharing things she had a lot of shame about when she, I remember her doing a show about the drugs, drug usage that she had gone mm -hmm. through with a bad boyfriend at one point or, or yeah. having a baby at 13. 
Um, yeah. And all of these things, you know, authenticity. Yeah. Yeah, she is. Uh, she's amazing, and I'm. I'm glad the world has her. Oprah, you cannot die. You have to live forever. Um, <laughs> so this kind of, I think we've addressed the elephant in the room. We can say sashay away to imposter syndrome. Um, there's so many other ways we could take it, but of course, I think we've definitely covered it. You've given a lot of great advice to my listeners regarding your experience. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. But now oh, we get to move on to pleasure. the fun part of the podcast, of course, which um, Ooh, really that? likes to ex explain kind of how my guests brain work. Um, so things that they're fanatical and unpopular opinions, just because I think it's fun. Uh -huh. um, so what is one or a few things you are fanatical about and why? Well, well right now it sounds funny, but I built these two bird baths outside my window of my desk. So I look out and I can't believe the amount of pleasure I get out of watching these birds splashing around in the freaking bird bath. It's just <laughs> the sound of it, you know, and I was hear the splashes and I'll look up and I, you know, they, they seem so appreciative. I see them drinking, then I see them have their bath and everything from giant owls to tiny little sparrow oh, wow. type birds. Yeah, like this owl just jumps in there and all the water's displaced immediately. Um, it just, it, it's just pure joy. And I never thought I would ever be, I used to make fun of people that like to watch birds and things, you know, like, what the hell are you talking about? That's so boring. But there's something just pure joyful about it. And, um, and right now I'm totally obsessed with eating um, coconut bliss, dark chocolate ice cream for some reason with with whipped cream on top of it and, uh, and my husband joys. simple joys and my husband shares that one too um and making a lot of berry crisps and apple crisps and things and nice. rhubarb crisps right now yeah, in covid lockdown and mm -hmm. together and i guess my most fanatical favorite thing right now is just was watching a lot of these old tv shows i grew up on yeah. back in the 60s and 70s like mary tyler moore show that girl mm -hmm. um Bewitched, The Flying Nun, and especially of all, my queen, Carol Burnett. Yeah. I loved those shows. Yeah. I did not have cable growing up, so um, those shows were on the public access channels, so I watched a lot of Bewitched. I watched a lot of Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> Um, I don't think The Flying Nun or Carol Burnett was on it, but I, I definitely remember um, Bewitched and Mary Tyler Moore for sure. And I think that there was that was when the golden age of TV, I mean, really, like, people were trying a bunch of different things and, and they were working and they were so beloved and TV was just such a staple. And uh, oh, yeah. I interviewed my friend Skylar who works in TV production now. Uh -huh. um, and uh, she, I actually talked to her last night. That's why it's in very high in my brain. And, and she was a latchkey kid. So she grew up with television and stuff, but uh -huh. these were the shows and stuff that like were so iconic. I mean, Brady Bunch and oh yeah and Gilligan's Island and yeah yeah I mean it was just they're just they don't make stuff like that anymore because it's changed so much um and now we have all these things we have to adhere to but I definitely still love that you can that's why I love streaming so much is you can just get all of these shows you can watch them again which is nice they don't well, they're not ever going to go away well and it's also interesting to go back and look at them now from my perspective and try to you know, sort of understand what was it about, like, say, Bewitched that I was just so obsessed with. And I can see that it has this subtext to it. You know, when you think of like a little kid that doesn't fit in at all and is being treated like they're bad and horrible. And they and then you when you realize you're gay, you feel like you have this secret thing mm -hmm. that to you is not a terrible thing. It's like a 
but everyone else will think it's terrible. Just like Samantha having magic powers and having to hide them because people wouldn't be able to accept them or, or, you know, understand yeah, it, cause fear, it like right? Yeah. And, and I never thought of it that way as a kid, but when I look back at it now, I, I can totally see that. She has this huge secret. Yeah. Same with, same with the flying nun. She, she has this power to fly, but she can't tell anybody. And Sally Field was so, had such a, um, something so whimsical and, and, uh, there was something about her energy that I felt drawn to. And now I've learned, you know, I just read her, her autobiography and she was horribly sexually abused as a kid by her. Wow. Step- I didn't know that. Yeah. Like yeah. just terribly. And the time she, at the time she was doing the flying nun, she was, hadn't even begun to process how that had affected her. And it's almost like I could feel her sadness and I connected with it. Yeah. Um, or, or the Mary Tyler Moore show where she's supposed to be on her own, you know, in the title credits, she's, how will you make it on your own? And, and this idea that you're on your own in life and you have to go out and make your life. And then she finds her best friend Rhoda and has her cool apartment. And it's like, oh yeah, that's what you get to do when you grow up. And um, you find your, like you said, you, you find your chosen family. You, you will find your tribe kind of. And yeah, so they, they gave me hope all those shows in some strange little way, you know. Um, so it's fun to go back and see them again now and uh, appreciate that maybe they weren't even created with that intention, but they had that effect. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And I think that there's something nostalgic to go back and watch the things from your childhood. It's funny because you realize things that you didn't realize when you were a kid. Yeah. And, and like, so... Um, I forget like what the what the phenomenon is called, but there's this like this nostalgic thing where you're like, wow, uh, I was talking to someone and they said like Friends now hasn't aged well, and then I thought about it and I was like, man, I loved Friends as a kid, yeah. and and now I'm like, uh, yeah, it didn't really age well, like <laughs> yeah. So, but ways, but yeah. but even so, I mean, it's a guilty pleasure and I still mm-hmm. love it, but I don't put it on the same pedestal anymore because it's so different than um, what what yeah. society would tell you is normal now. Well, or even even like for me, having lived in Hollywood for like 15 years, a lot of the remnants of, of the tangible parts of those shows, like the sound stages where they were filmed, the studios they were made at, or like the case of Gilligan's Island, the, the Lagoon set was still mm-hmm. on the back lot at CBS Radford when I moved there. And um, I would get to, to actually either, you know, be, be in these physical places where these shows I had loved and had been made and so it's fun to watch them again now, having been in those places and, and watching them just from the technical thing mm-hmm. of realizing how they were made technically, or even now when they're broadcast digitally and you can see the picture so much more clearly. You can often see like on Bewitched or those shows, if you look at the floor, you can see the marks for yeah. the actors because they didn't show back in the broadcast days. Yeah. yeah. And, and the makeup, you know, you can oh, see. Yeah. It's just so funny to me. And you see yeah. the wires on all the magic, you know. <laughs> um, I love that. It's, yeah. I, I actually, the anniversary of this memory of this thing. Um, so I, for a number of years, was a huge Bachelor fan, um, which is a reality show on ABC. I oh, uh, yeah. watched as a kid um, and loved it. Anyway, I have a friend and she's a producer um, for The Bachelor. And I met her through Peloton because I have the Peloton bike. And, uh, uh, and when I moved to San Diego, she was like, Hey, you love the bachelor and I work for the bachelor. Like I'll throw you on a guest list. You can bring a plus one and come to the sound taping for the Mentel all, which was 
Um, I forget whose season it was at this point. Who cares? Uh, oh but God. anyway, I got to see how it was made, and it was crazy to me because it was like they shared a soundstage with Blackish. I want to say was the TV oh, show really? that they were doing. Wow. Yeah, or it was like Blackish a sitcom. Or, or no, the middle. It used to be the middle. Oh, oh the middle. Yeah. There. Yeah, and um, it was just interesting. So the, so set, the set right. for the middle was at the other end of the soundstage? No, because it was, I think the show was no longer there, but they, they were using that soundstage. And, ah. and it was crazy to me that, okay, that, first of all, the, the risers that we're sitting on were so small, but they look so big when you see them on TV. And, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and, I've, and I've worked in reality television, so I know how things are made. But uh, this was like a streamlined, like Chris Harrison doing this host, like doing cues and and all of that. And it was really cool experience to see it. And, and I'm much more appreciative of it now because I saw like a well-oiled machine working around me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that that's, that's cool. It makes you kind of really appreciate that craft at that point. Yeah. The craft and the chance to go back and sort of say mm -hmm. goodbye to emotionally or whatever, to that whole time that we're, we're sort of in mind of our nostalgic times through mm -hmm. this COVID lockdown time, I think. Yeah. So uh, what is one or a few unpopular opinions you have and why? And I read yours and I thought it was very interesting. <laughs> yeah. The one that I came to mind that I've had a lot of, I don't know, talks with people about is that there's a fine line between cuddling a wounded inner child, your wounded inner child, and coddling your whining inner crybaby. And mm. That was just, I say that from my own years of having to negotiate through that, of trying to figure out at what point do you, you know, you, you, you have to go back and uncover what your wounds were and, yeah. and you have to become almost like your own parent. If you didn't get your needs met, you eventually somehow have to go back, retrieve that child at all the ages and stages that didn't get what it needed. And you have to somehow figure out how do you give it to it retroactively. You become yeah. your own parent, right? But there's a fine line between, you know, you have to be a tough, loving parent sometimes. And sometimes you have to sort of say, okay, that's enough. You, 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 we've indulged your victimness over that long enough now. And it's mm -hmm. time, to, you know, I've listened to you cry about that. And, and we all acknowledge, yes, that was very sad that that happened to you. I'm so sorry. But it's time to take action to move forward somehow, you know, to not be, stay stuck in that. Yes, those yeah. bad, sad things happened to you then, but now you're in charge of your life. Choose differently and get on with it. You know, don't use those things as an excuse to, to hold you back. Yeah. And, um, and there, sometimes if that's a hard thing, you know, maybe you've had a friend like that, or, you know, we often will listen to somebody and we'll get an idea will occur to us to suggest if they're saying they're stuck or they're unhappy with something in their life, like maybe they're in a relationship they're not happy in and you listen for, for two hours to the sob, sad story about how mistreated they were, blah, blah, blah. And then finally you say, well, maybe you need to move on, you know, and they will get sometimes defensive and then start to say, well, it's not really that bad, you know, and they'll start to argue to hold on to those limitations and mm -hmm. to stay in that kind of victim place because in that victim place, you don't have to face the courage it takes to move forward. And you can get a lot of sympathy in victim place. Yes, yes. Um, I've been noticing that quite a bit um, with some friends I've had recently. And it's just like, 
I don't want to hear about your shitty relationship constantly. Like if you're not going to do something about it, then I'm not here to give you advice anymore. You can't cry on my shoulder if you're not going to do something about it. So um, it's that's something I've had to learn as an empath. Um, I've had to learn that I need to put boundaries up when people, um, when people take and take and take and they're not realizing it because I'm not expressing otherwise. Cause um, at the beginning of COVID, I just felt drained by people's issues. I'm sad. (laughs) I have to go through unemployment and I can't figure it out and I need your help. And I was, there was a lot that was expected of me because, you know, I left as a marketing director where these salespeople essentially counted on me for things. And suddenly Uh I was no longer there and they were like, Oh gosh, like, what do I do? And I just had to be like, I, you are in your thirties, your forties, like figure it out. Yes. Like, like I did things for you because I work there. I no longer work there. I ha- so I had to start setting up boundaries in that uh-huh. way. And also, um, you know, I've, I've started asking my friends, especially, I'll say, hey, like, what do you need from me right now? Do you want advice? Do you need me to just listen? Do you want me to say anything at all? Like, just tell me how I can help you. And that's been really helpful too. But I agree that you... Definitely in therapy, I'm learning that I have to age my feelings. Um, so this feeling comes from four years old. This feeling comes from eight years old. This feeling comes from nine years old. Mm-hmm. And it is very hard to like, I, you know, I, it's, it's a roller coaster of emotions after therapy. Like my husband will say like, I just don't talk to you. Like you're, <laughs> I don't yeah. want to rock the boat, but I've uncovered some very harsh realities within my trauma and my childhood uh-huh. that are so sad, but I've come to a place of peace where I'm like, okay, yeah, that happened. Like you said, yeah, that happened. And that was really sad, but what good does bringing it up over and over and over again when look at where you're at now? Yeah, you can take that energy and put it into something that might help someone else pull themselves out of being stuck in that. Yeah, and I I have this resounding quote that I continue to say, and I've said it in every episode is that, this is a time for deep introspection with this mm. pandemic. And I get innately annoyed when people tell me like, I'm so bored. I'm like, okay, like, <laughs> yeah. I, like, oh my gosh. I, oh. well, let's see. I started a podcast. My dog got very <laughs> sick. I had to put my dog down. My husband was gone oh. and I was by myself for a long time because it was the Navy. All these oh. things happened. You didn't see me complaining. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, okay, if you're bored, find a craft, do a hobby. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Like it just, it blows my mind when people are like, this is just so sucky. I can't do anything and stuff. And I'm starting to realize that that is like the people I can't have in my life. Cause I'm like, if you're not self-sufficient enough to like figure it out and be a better person, like take this time to be a better human for other humans. Like, I don't know. Why don't you start, you know, stop systemic racism or educate yourself or read a book about racism or, you know, read a book about allyship. So that's kind of like the hill I stand on. And it kind of goes along with this um, coddling the whiner and her crybaby because a lot of people, it's, it's easier to play the victim card. It's harder to accept that something might be your fault. Oh, it's way harder because then you have to take responsibility to mm-hmm. take some action that's going, you know, life and growth are difficult. And we're yes. sold this bill of goods that everything's supposed to be effortless and easy somehow. And it is just not. And that's mm-hmm. the reality. And the sooner you accept that and make peace with that, um, the better off you'll be. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. So we're coming towards the end of this beautiful conversation. It's been such a pleasure to get to know oh, you, David, so and you're wonderful. And now I just feel like you're going to be my friend for life. I'm so excited to um, get to know you even more, watch all of your YouTube videos, share them with my friends. Um, but I always allow my guests the platform to promote whatever they'd like. So take it away. Okay. Well, I love that opportunity. Thank you for that. And I, I have three things I'd like to promote. And one is uh, a stage show that my husband and I created, and we've been workshopping and performing it, um, an original musical for the last couple of years. And we filmed it last November, the production that we did last November. And we've decided during the COVID lockdown that we're going to make it available for streaming. And the show is called The Driftwood Bridge. And it's about a lot of, actually, a lot of the things we've been talking about today are those kind of themes are woven in there. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you'd probably find something of interest in the show. And you can find it on uh, www.driftwoodbridge.com. And there's all the information about it is there and it'll start streaming in the next couple of weeks. The second thing is uh, an online interactive language arts series that I've been working on for the last 20 years called Cozy Grammar. And especially in these times when people are having to learn at home, and I, we just heard here today in Washington, actually, that kids are not going to be going back to school in September. Um, so a lot of people are learning at home. And so we've been, you know, this is a series that's been, um, it was on VHS tapes originally, and it was on DVDs, and then it was broadcast for a time. And now it's streaming. And it's, it's a complete grammar, punctuation, and spelling, and um, essay writing curriculum and it has videos that you watch and then it has also online interactive exercises and tips and everything you need to learn about grammar in a cozy way and the cozy comes from the fact that all the episodes were filmed on location in British Columbia and some mm -hmm. were filmed on location in the Orkney Islands in Scotland and some in London England and and some here in Washington State so they're mostly outdoors and in everyday situations, so they're not in classrooms. And mm. um, they've been very popular with homeschoolers for 20 years, and they starred my best friend, who was a school teacher named Marie Rackham, who passed away from breast cancer. And originally, we started shooting the series because when she was diagnosed with cancer, and I asked her what I could do to help, she was the, the mentor that helped me as mm -hmm. a kid in high school. She said that she just wanted to be where cancer wasn't, and at the time I'd been studying um, film production at the American Film Institute in Hollywood and I'd saved up a bunch of money and I wanted to produce something. So I asked her if she wanted to star in this language arts series. And she said she would love to, to just keep her mind focused on something positive. So between cancer treatments, we just shot episodes over almost four and a half years and until uh, she couldn't do them anymore and passed yeah. away. And then subsequently, uh, my husband is now the main on-camera teacher, and so we have continued to keep producing new episodes and keeping it current. And So that's Cozy Grammar, and you can find that at CozyGrammar.com if, mm -hmm. if that's of interest. And the third thing is just a fun thing. Um, when this whole COVID lockdown happened, my husband and I realized, you know, that we're, we live in a 20-foot yurt that we lived in originally very consciously because we wanted to learn to have good communication skills. And we knew that being confined in a small space would do that. And this was almost 10 years ago. 
And we found that we loved living in such a scaled down way so much and being close to nature with the permeable walls and hearing the nature sounds. And, and we travel a lot with our work and it was just a lovely little haven to come back to. So we're, this is where we were when the COVID lockdown happened, but we weren't used to being in it 24 seven mm -hmm. all the time in a 20 foot round space. So we started, decided we needed to create something to put our energy into uh, instead of, you know, um, just getting on each other's nerves kind of in a way. So we started doing these Broadway in the yurt videos, they were called. And originally um, some regional theaters were putting them on their websites as a way of encouraging subscribers at the theaters to continue donating to the theaters so that the theater companies wouldn't go out of business. And then um, they got attention in the New York Times just by fluke. They they, they featured one of our videos called Mood Altering Foods, where I was making fun of, you know, um, the desire for comfort foods mm -hmm. being in the COVID lockdown. And they put it on the online version of the New York Times. And uh, it, it, they just suddenly got all this attention that I hadn't <laughs> expected. And so it's been a fun byproduct. A lot of things have been coming out of that, a lot of wonderful opportunities. And anyway, we just keep producing these silly sort of videos that are kind of a twist on famous Broadway songs. And you can find those, if you just type Broadway in the yurt into YouTube, then they come up, the, the playlist will come up. I love that. And um, I have a friend that's um, actually uh, coming to Broadway. I'm gonna actually send her this link like immediately after we hang up here. But um, oh, cause she, she's um, in the revival of 1776. And, uh, <gasps> Are they reviving is, that show? Yes, yes. And her name is Mehri. So if you listen to my podcast, David, um, it's uh -huh. episode nine and she's just a joy. So I think you would really like that episode. So episode nine, okay. episode nine, um, featuring Mahri in Slovenia. Uh, and she, I went to college with her and she's just an utter delight. So I thought she would like this. So I'll share this with her after, um, after we've been talking, uh -huh. but to my listeners, I always put all of the information that David has shared in the description of the podcast. Um, and David, thank you so much for talking with me today, sharing a bit of your story, your life for my listeners. I think it's been really insightful and helpful. It's been a lovely conversation. Do not be a stranger. I will definitely be in touch. And to my listeners, if you like this episode, please like, share, um, connect with David. Uh, it just, just, you know, continue to spread the good word um, because every little ounce of support is, you know, making the dream work. So thank you so much, David. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon and have a lovely day. Thank you, Bianca. And thank, thank you for everything you're doing to sort of bring these issues out to people. It's very helpful. You're, you're quite an extraordinary young person. I know Aww. you probably don't feel like a young person, but <laughs> my old geezerhood vantage point, you're quite, you're, you, you seem quite, you know, wise for your age and grave. <laughs> oh, so thank, thank you. you. Yes, yes. Um, I, yeah, uh, I was always, <laughs> I've always been loud. It's like, you don't get named Bianca and then <laughs> and then you're quiet, you know? <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> Have a lovely day. <laughs> you too. All right. Bye-bye.
Hey listeners, I wanted to share a special promotion for you from Dash of Pep. Dash of Pep is a clothing boutique that offers non-binary clothing that has fun prints that support mental health and empowering you to be your best self. In this pandemic, it is great to shop small and support small businesses like Dash of Pep. More than 50% of my wardrobe is from her adorable store. Robin at Dash of Pep has graciously given me a promo code for you to use at checkout. Use P-D-K-M-O to receive 15% off your order. Again, that is www.dash of pep.com and you can enter p-d-k-m-o at checkout to receive 15% off your order. This has been Please Don't Kick Me Out, a podcast about imposter syndrome. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, like, comment, share, tell a friend. You know, that's how I'm going to keep these stories going. Also, if you want to be a podcast guest, you can reach out to me at pdkmopodcast at gmail.com and we can get it set up. Thanks everyone for your continued support. And I look forward to, you know, connecting with you again next Monday.